David, I, I'm thrilled, and I know you're thrilled too, because we are welcoming back two of our favorite filmmakers, Ian and Esham Nelms, uh, for, to talk about their latest movie, Red Right Hand, which is open in uh, select theaters and video on demand as we speak. So this is very exciting. We, we caught up about, what, three years ago, four years ago, mm -hmm. to talk about Fat Man, uh, yeah. their, last, their last film with, uh, with, with Mel Gibson. Um, and now we're going to talk about a, a totally different movie that is still within your guys' wheelhouse, uh, Red Right Hand. Um, it's shaping up to be one of my favorite films of the year. Um, and yeah, it's one of those nerve shattering kind of uh, hard boiled. I, I think I wrote down in my notes, noir on rye, uh, kind of a, <laughs> kind of a feeling to it. So, but before we get into all of that, Ian and Esham, how are you guys doing? We're good. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting to have another movie to come out. Um, it, it's been an adventurous three years since we talked about fat man, you know, coming sure. out of a pandemic. Uh, you know, we went out and made a movie during the pandemic. Um, and we went into a lot of uh, strikes, industry strikes. So yeah, we, we've, I mean, for, for, honestly, for the last three years, we've just been, we, we made that movie in the last, I guess, year, we've just been writing, 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 uh, gearing up for the next one. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, I was wondering about, um, the writing on this one. Uh, this is a film that you guys didn't write. So mm -hmm. you're talking about, you know, you've been writing, we'll get to that in a moment, but I guess, uh, can you talk about how with this movie, um, this was not written by you. It was written by Jonathan Easley. Um, how did you guys hook up? And did this come from Easley's head? Did you collaborate at all? Or was this adapted from somewhere? So I think um, it was passed to us by some folks via like Thunder Road and their tributary Asbury Park. Um, the tra a couple of producers, uh, Jason and Zach over Traction, had optioned the script from Jonathan um, a few years ago now. But they saw... Um, small town crime recently really liked it. You know, then they saw fat man and they were like, okay, maybe these guys will fit for this, uh, you know, Southern thriller. We're, we're, we're popping off here. So it landed on our desk and, and Thunder Road had actually passed us a few scripts. We, we'd done some work with them in the past, like a writing job. Um, and they liked us. Uh, they liked small town crime and we'd had a little bit of a relationship with them. Um, and they had passed us a couple of scripts that we were like, ah, this one doesn't quite hit us in the right spot. This one doesn't quite hit us in the right spot. And then this one hit us, Man, it's the, it, I think it's the characters and the setting. Um, it's not a typical thriller action piece for us. We thought that it, it really sort of transcended the genre in a way because you really get so – it spends such a great amount of time in the beginning getting you locked into those characters mm -hmm. so that when you do go on that ride uh, – and it's just a nice build into that, you know, that last – it feels like 40 minutes. What is it? 20 minutes of, uh, of, a, of an action sequence. That it might be unfolds. 30. It's a lot. <laughs> um, but it just has such a nice build. We, we were so excited about the characters, you know, rarely had we seen, um, cash or an, or a, a big cat like that before. And the dialogue was just crackling. So, and then, I mean, Ash and I had had a, a meeting actually with Orlando a few years previous, right after small town crime, and he liked that movie and he was like, I want to do something like this with you guys. Yeah, because I think our, our interest in this was was a was kind of a, a tandem thing that happened, right? So we met Orlando after Small Town Crime, sat down with him, just got along with him like gangbusters over a breakfast. And we were just like, man, we really like this guy. It'd be fun to work with him. And he was really hungry to do something outside what he had done before. And and during that breakfast, like, you know, just digging into who he is as a person and what his interests were, 
we just saw a different side of him than this sort of like dashingly handsome heartthrob, you know, elf that we'd seen before. And we're like, wow, like you know, this guy's got a lot of a lot of gears. Like I think it'd be really cool to explore those. So then cut to you know a couple of years, you know, a year and a half ago when they, when we found uh, when we got um, Red Right Hand. Yeah, I looked at each other after reading it. You know what would be really interesting is to throw someone like Orlando in this movie and and give a performance that he no one has seen him do before, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we when you read a script, you know, or or write a script, is you're thinking like, who would play this character? Like, who would do? Who would be? Who would be a great character? And then your mind starts drifting to like, you know, you hit the you hit the usual suspects, and then you sort of start drifting to some crazy cool fun ideas. And I, for us, like. Orlando was just that really cool idea. If he was down to do something like this, it could yeah. be really incredible. Because there, there are some more, you know, rather pedestrian choices for it, right? That you've seen do this genre film many, many times. And you were like, oh, that didn't interest us. So so that's what got us sparked on it. And then the collaborative, like once we, we liked the script, but we wanted to like work with Jonathan a little bit to like, you know, do some like different things throughout, right? Little tweaks here and there, nothing big. I got to give him so much credit. He is by far the best collaborative writing experience or, you know, that we've had to date, I would say. And we've yeah. had some like decent ones, um, but he really did such a bang up job. And we would like, you know, we all brainstormed together and then he'd run off and like do the draft and come back and send us stuff. And he was like, you know, you come up with ideas and you're like, Hey, what about this, this, and this? And you're like, Oh, cool. Well, you don't realize the ripple effect of that every time. Right. Like that's going to change stuff upriver, downriver, all over. Jonathan was like getting in there and like figuring out all those problems that we were creating with our notes, like way down river. He was full sending it, like transcending, like every, like our expectations on how hard and how tenaciously he would attack those changes. Um, he just did a fantastic job. Yeah. We, and then of course we were, you know, much more invested in the script after that. So we were, we were really pumped to make it after that. And we went out to Orlando, got him on board. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. We had a blast during the writing process of that. So, I mean, the movie Bloom stars as a guy named Cash who, you know, he's got a, a troubled past and he gets roped back into a life of crime when his brother-in-law and his niece, uh, they come into some financial trouble because uh, the brother-in-law ends up owing, uh, <laughs> owing the farm to the local crime boss played by Andy McDowell playing uh, <laughs> playing Big Cat. You want to talk about really interesting casting choices. I mean, they're all over this movie. The, the thing that, that struck me, and I wonder if this comes from Easley's background as a journalist and a political writer, is, you know, it's a it's a Southern set movie, but it doesn't tackle things in the way that you might expect from, you know, a genre film. It's not full of a bunch of like racist rednecks and, you know, very, uh, the, the dynamics between the different types of people that we meet in the film are very, they feel very specific, almost as if they were created by someone who's been out and about among people instead of just watching movies about people. Um, was this, uh, is that something that you responded to on the page? Is that something that was sort of finessed throughout the process? Dude, you nailed it, man. That's exactly it, right? Like we, we really wanted to see a different perspective of that demographic of the South um and jonathan is from the area he's well versed in in the in the demographic he's he has a, a he has those people in his blood right he understands them quite well um obviously when we got there you know we're, we're from central california uh <laughs> it's a bit of a different vibe you know uh we do we are we are from the country we're from a rural part of california but when we went to uh kentucky and started pre-pro and we're running around the hollers and the and the old like we shot this literally in old like in Knob Creek like old bourbon 
you know, bootleg your country. Yeah. Um, and there are some colorful characters hidden in those hollers, man. And we really got to meet a lot of them. Um, and we realized every day how much more accurate Jonathan's script was. Um, yeah, man, it was interesting. We, but it has more of a contemporary uh, slant to it, right? You don't feel like these people just crawled out of a cabin and they don't know what's going on in the world, right? It's a worldly demographic that lives there in that in those hollers. And Annie McDowell was an interesting one because she was definitely on our radar and uh, like we love her. We loved her 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 past projects, but big fans of her work. But we didn't think this would be something she would be interested in. So she was on one of that those sort of first lists of like, hey, this these would be really cool possibilities, but we just didn't even think it would be possible to get her. Cause we were just like, you know, why waste, you know, a month trying to get a read. I, I've never seen her do anything like this. And we didn't know her. So we were just like, I don't know. Um, and then her agent passed it to her unbeknownst to us because as, as it works, you know, the scripts that are, that are rolling, they start to go out to some agencies and then agents get a look at them and say, you know, I have a client that might be good for this. Well, her agent, you know, kudos to her. Cause she was just like, I think Andy might dig this passed it to her. Andy read it and then hit us up and was like, hey, I know you haven't seen me do something like this, but I have this in me. And we sat down with a Zoom call with her and she was in like leather pants and she was just like she was in big cat mode. But she was she was so totally pleasant. We were laughing, having a good time. It was a great conversation. But you could see those flares in moments that obviously she was doing on purpose to let us know that that was that that was all there for her. Like yeah, she could do this. There was a definite edge to her. And I remember she was like, yeah, I can definitely do this. Just ask my kids. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So so I'm curious because she was on, you know, one of your lists of like, oh, I'd like to work with her. But so what was it about Andy McDowell that you said, oh, maybe she could be big cat or is it just a matter of like, oh, maybe she could have a part in this movie somewhere. And she ended up becoming big cat. No, we went to her like when it when we sat down with her, we knew she could do Big Cat. Okay. Yeah, there's just there's no doubt. And and obviously, like you guys look, we're putting Orlando as cash. Like that's what excites us about these movies. And we're not gonna go out there and recklessly cast something like, hey, sure. why don't we just put random never done you know, so and so from broad comedy and like land them in this? That's not gonna work, right? But like if you see the inclinations, if you see the tendencies, if you know they're gonna put in the work to channel that character, then we'll get excited about something that's a little you know, a little more out of the box. We, we thought she, we thought she had a, I mean, she has a great, she has a great look. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if she could channel like this vicious woman, I mean, that was the question, you know, and I think it would have taken a zoom call, like, like, like what happened, exactly what happened. Even if we had gone after her and been like, Hey, we want you to play this character. I think the question would have been like, do you have the appetite to play this character? You know, not that could she have done it, but do you have the appetite to play it? Cause I think we've seen her do a little bit of this before um you see moments where yeah. she's like stern or you intense. know can be yeah it can be intense but you know to be able to carry this type of movie and where this thing goes it goes into some pretty dark places so for her for an actor to be able to take that on they gotta yeah. live with that for like a but, month or so <laughs> it's you pretty know, look, vicious. she's uber talented and you yeah. know she can do it it's just does she have the appetite to do it yeah, That's the yeah. Question. or or has she been given the opportunity to do something like this which she has, yeah. probably hasn't yeah. i i watched it and i thought like man she could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody on ozark <laughs> yeah. amazing i think that so was awesome well. yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she was amazing yeah we so thought she Speaking of casting, we also have Garrett Dillahunt, who love I, I love, and and I'm like, man, this guy was a Terminator, and now he's this, and, and <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, but yeah, he plays this kind of this uh, this preacher in the area who's got a sketchy past, um, and I 
I mean, what was your, obviously you were probably a fan of Garrett, like all of us, but how did you wrangle him and, and what was his kind of appetite, if you like to use the word you said, for this type of uh, material? For us, Garrett Dillahunt's like a Sam Rockwell, like a Walton Goggins. He's one of those like incredible, undefinable, unquantifiable actors that we've always wanted to work with. And then, you know, there's nothing he can't do. Exactly. Right? You're like, whatever you put, if he's if he's into it, you know he can do it. You know yeah. that guy can figure an angle into it to where you'll just sort of, you, you'll be slack-jawed watching him through a few of these intense scenes or these amazing yeah. scenes. <laughs> and I do remember like a bunch of the guys like that were in Cat, Big Cat's gang, like Kenny and Nick were like, watch Garrett just watch him <laughs> during this and they're all huddled around yeah. the monitor like watching Garrett during so the not day. Only, so it, it, and and that was fun too right because as filmmakers we like we love that guy we love his performances we're so excited to have him there and then to see the you know the uh the younger guys uh you know having as like, enamored as we are with nerding them. <laughs> out just about all the nuances of his performances standing around mm. just like really trying to learn something and pick up something yeah. off of him. like you see the way he tilted his head oh, oh my god, god. <laughs> uh they were just such fanboys as we all were we were so excited and then you know what probably the second half of it right is it's just he's just a great guy he really is that guy you're just like wow okay he's i mean one of those people you meet that's just like he lives up to the hype he's, he's so he, wonderful he really does and i and there was a moment when we were really hustling and i had a lot of extras running around in the background and he was amongst them i just we, i remember we turned yeah. we turned back and garrett was back there helping extras figure out like where they were gonna go and, and like what, what their motivation might be. <laughs> yeah. you know he was like now look you're uh, this is really popping off there's some gunfire here so maybe you're a little worried you know it's like and i just turned to and i go i love this man i know yeah. i absolutely love this man you got like like uh, like a director credit there for garrett <laughs> yes a second unit director yeah for, for garrett i mean he like he had those folks dialed in yeah as and it, it was uh just a, it, would have, it was a, just a big melee and there was just a lot of we were all very separated so esham and i and the stunt team were surrounded around a lot of the action that was happening. It was the parking lot scene. Parking I was going to say that's that sounds yeah. like the parking yeah. lot so scene. Garrett yeah. is over on the other side of the parking lot with behind the car, fifteen <laughs> extras. Yeah, and like, yeah, it was it was a it was a rough day because we had so we're, we're movies, racing. The sun's going down. Yeah, and on like movies like this, you know, on, on a big movie, you'll have you know an assistant directing team of like three or four people helping you handle all the extras and the different faucets of the thing. But we didn't have we were a little that. scrappier. We're a little slim, you know what I mean? So they can only take a couple of sections at a time or how much time it would take for you to move from one side of the scene to the other to start giving notes. And Garrett just jumped right in and started helping, which was fucking crazy. It's awesome. It's just that guy. Yeah, and you just like, that's who you're looking for, right? Like collaborators when the, when the S hits the fan, that it's all hands on deck and we're going to get it done. It's going to be great. You know? Yeah. yeah well, he, I, and he and, and sorry, but he we would get into these we would get into these moments where you know you only have thirty minutes to get this part of the scene or whatever. And he was just great. He was he was never like fuck. I don't have an hour to get this. What the fuck, guys? He was always just like, all right, we got a half an hour. Yeah, just keep it rolling, and I'll just I'll just do them back to back. But still so, serious, like yeah, perfect, fucking great. Yeah, he was just that guy. Now, <clears throat> I I wonder about his his casting in particular because as we've all established, he's he's played some great heavies, some great you know kind of yeah. psychopaths. Yeah. And to see him turn up in this movie as a preacher, and we find out pretty early on that he had a sketchy past, as David mentioned. So in my mind, I'm constantly watching, mm. is he going to have a heel turn? Mm -hmm. Is he everything that he appears to be? And I'm not going to talk about what happens to his character or who he 
know, is or may not be, because I think the audience needs to discover that by themselves. But I'm wondering, was that part of the calculation in casting him was to have the audience wonder, is there any kind of a rug that's going to be pulled out that that constant sense of like, I don't know how safe our heroes are because they're hanging out with this guy. I hope so. Yeah, I, I really do hope so. We hope that, that, that that's the, the look. Every actor you cast comes with their baggage. Yeah. And you know that as a as a as a cinephile, as as a lover of movies, and we obviously want to play against type, or you know, take a left turn when you're expecting a right, or you don't quite know where we're gonna go. Like that's of course all the fun of it. Well, it reminded me of like the casting, and and we love to do this, but just the casting of like small time crime when we cast Robert Forrester as the mm. grandfather, right? There's definitely like, and I love movies like this where you see a character that you love or an actor, a character actor you love or an actor that you love that you're wondering like how they're going to mix into this later. Mm -hmm. Wondering what side they're going to, they're going to come on in in what capacity or, or Clifton Collins jr. You know, you're like, you're like, where's this guy going to go? You know? And and how do I feel about this guy? Is this, is this a good guy or a bad guy? And how is he going to flop at the end? Like, is he going to be the good guy or a bad guy or whose two sides he going to be on? And you know, in, in, in Garrett's character, like, you know, he can, he, he probably could be a very dangerous person, uh, having been cash, having been one of her henchmen, having been in a bad way. Still is. Yeah. And you're wondering like, where's this guy, where's this guy going to flop? And, uh, yeah, we, we were super excited to get him because again, like he's such a great actor. He's able to play that line, that razor's edge for you until the moment. You know, and, and he knows where he's going, but he wants to. He wants to play it exactly like you said. He wants to play it just so the audience can guess and hope. <laughs> yeah, since you were talking about the parking lot scene, can you talk about shooting that with your DP? And did you have, like, an idea of, like, okay, I know you mentioned Scrappy. Is this – I noticed, at least watching it, that, like, oh, the, the brothers are doing something different here with their camera work here wow. for this particular sequence. You know, can you talk about maybe – maybe a different approach you had to shooting that hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think this one, we went into it and look, Ian and I aren't traditionally lovers of the handheld aesthetic. We, 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 we have a love of, uh, of, 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 of design and photography that's locked off. It doesn't, you know, but we had been watching a lot of movies where we found it really effective uh, as, as of, of late. And we thought, wow, you know, like I think going into this one, it would lend itself to a little more handheld aesthetic, a little more intimacy, a little more voyeuristic, you're sitting next to them kind of feel. And so that led to a lot of the decisions for the for the handheld use in, in Red by Hand. And then in that particular sequence in the parking lot, we really wanted an energy and a phoneticism to the camera work and the editing. And, and it's a little chaotic, right? You're, you're, you're grabbing bits, you're there. You know, obviously we want, you, we don't want you to be confused, but we want you to have that little, that energy and that phoneticism. Yeah, there was there were there were so many action sequences and little moments of tension and and you know thriller esque type moments in the film. We really wanted to try to find a look and a feel for each scene that felt different. And that one had had such a great feel of like one like one of our commitments to the handheld was like, hey, we want a really handheld almost all, if not all, of the family elements in the film because we want this we want that to suck you in a little bit more. So when we're on the farm or we're in the house or, you know, they're having a moment with the family, like we're handheld, hopefully, hopefully drawing you in. And in that fight, it just lent itself. You've got two main family members in there. You've got Wilder, who's extended family. You're coming out of church. 
it lent itself to this. And like I said, the energy that came with it was different than any other scene. And we were really excited about it because it captured something that wasn't that wasn't happening in all the other action scenes. We wanted you to feel like you were amongst the crowd. Yeah. Watch. yeah. You did it. Well, well, yeah. And there's there's also a sense of, of disbelief. I think kind of going back to what we're talking about, the, the surprises in the casting. I mean, you literally have people coming out of church on a Sunday and yeah. there's a parking lot and something bad's about to go down. But in the back of my head, I was thinking, how bad could this really be? They're in public. They people. It's a church parking lot. Yeah. But what happens happens. And it just goes to show the brutality, uh, the mindset of the people who are, you know, who instigated what happened. Um, and it just it throws you for the loop. It really puts you in the mindset of, yes, anything can happen and, and often does. In terms of the, the technique that you use, you mentioned that you weren't so crazy about handheld, but you'd seen some pictures that, that kind of brought you over to the light side, I guess. Yeah. Um, what were some of those influences? And when you make that decision, like, oh, I want to try this, do you just watch a whole bunch of movies using those techniques? Do you have people that you go to to kind of learn or, or you know, mentor or study under? How do you, how do you pull that off? So it's a myriad of both. So there were a bunch of movies we watched um, amongst them, like Wind River, Place Beyond the Pines. I got a whole list that are, we watched with our DP. And obviously all those whole, those movies aren't entirely handheld, but we, we saw sections in it that we liked and we saw sections in it we didn't like. And what we realized is like for most of the stuff, what we, the handheld we like is very stable, right? It's a little more stable than usual. So it's almost like you like putting the camera on the shoulder we used for a lot of the family stuff. So it mm -hmm. felt a little more organic. You could feel the body. And then we would have what they call like an easy rig, which is a backpack or a back support that has a cable that goes down. And so when we were like, oh, this should feel a little bit more cinematic and we don't want a lot of shake in that, let's use the easy rig. And then obviously when we were designing shots, like when they go and they raid the brick house, mm -hmm. like that's a steady cam. Right. So we had like all these varying degrees of hand. And then when we got to the parking lot, it's like, Hey, we want to be aggressive. We want to be throwing the camera on the ground. We want to be whip panning. Like we want to just go for broke with it. So like that, those were sort of the, 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 these like sort of quadrants that we divided the handheld in. And on the other side of that, like, I think we would do like two or three films that we would definitely do two or three films at a time when we were watching these films. And we would always sort of load it up. Like, okay, we, we think this film, Usually there were films we'd seen previously and, and then wanted to discuss with Johnny. So Esham and I and Johnny would all watch these movies and then talk about them afterward. But we would also put in one in there that was one we didn't like the low, the, the, uh, yeah, the there was a, yeah, there was an intentional like. And it was and it was usually they, they definitely had moments that worked in the film with the handheld. But for the most part, we were like, ah, shit, like it's, it's not doing it for me for some reason. And, and, and then we would analyze like, and then why? we would discuss like, why does this one? Why does this one have sequences that do work? And why did these sequences not work for us? You know, that was and I think we needed to do that because, it, you know, we did not. I would say we did not like handheld before we used it in this film until we started seeing it popping up in other moments and other scenes in films. And then it was like, okay, well, how do we get that aesthetic instead of that aesthetic? Yeah, because I, I can't remember the exact film yeah. that we watched, but we were like, we started liking it. My goodness, that works great. <laughs> like, that works, that works so great. I feel like I'm like sitting next to him and I didn't even, know, I didn't even bump on it the whole movie. Yeah. I have to say a lot of in a lot of the recent films that I've watched, you know, where the, where drone footage is used, mm -hmm. I you know, it's it's a little bit of a overuse of it and it's a bit of an eye roll on, on my from my perspective, but I was actually relieved with the the drone footage here cuz I could actually like come up for air and breathe cuz everything right. else is like kind of like so intense 
Uh, and I'm not just talking action sequences, but just in between people and interactions like, oh, man, OK, yeah, let's get an establishing <laughs> shot here. Let's get a drone shot in here. OK, I could breathe now. Brilliant. No, that that's by design. Right. Because we wanted that juxtaposition. Right. Yeah. Like, let's let it breathe. Let's come out and like, ah, because when you're in those trees, man, those canopies, it's like smothering. Yeah. You can't see the horizon line. You just see this like big wall of green everywhere. And then you get out and you're like, oh, my God, this is beautiful. Up right. from, up, you know. 180 feet in the air or even some of those action sequences like you know there's times when you want to get in close and you want to see the gunfire and you want to see the expression on people's faces and you want to see when they get hit but there's also times where you want to see the geography right get out and be like okay i got it let's get back in you know okay i see how he gets there i see how that connects i see him over there great let's get back in you know like we were you know and that, that's editing and then having the footage right and, and we were we were definitely more we like we love like a lot of earlier Michael Mann's like heat and stuff where you really have a perspective of where you're at in the action. Placement. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than, and we like to touch back to it and jump back in, touch back to it and jump back in. And the intent, I'm like, I think to your point, David, like, look, I think the, the drone, the, the drone is a new tool. It's an exciting tool, Yeah. but you're seeing people like do crazy things with it, right? Like spiral under a car and fly through a bowling alley. And you're just like, it's man, impressive. that was, it's that was a really impressive drone operator shot. Yeah. It, it did not help the movie at all, but what a great shot. It, it can kind of tend to be a ripcord effect to take you out of the movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because then you're aware of how it's being done. You don't want that. And uh, I think for us, like we, our tastes tend to skew a little more classical. So like we're, we would use it and we used it in this film a little more classically. We would know? try to use it more as like a crane or a helicopter shot or, you know, like in, in or and a lot of time. You know, we don't we don't have the time or the budget to go get a helicopter to go get the shot. So it was a godsend. It's like, okay, let's get this great shot sweeping over the house, well, panning around, showing the setup. And here's another thing with the drone. It's it's wild, right? Because you get out there and you're sitting there with your production team and they're like, okay, well, what three days do you want the drone on your 33 day shoot? And you're like, uh. <laughs> you're like, wait, what? I'm sorry, three days? And like, and they, can you imagine like trying to curate your shots by that? So like, yeah. you wonder like, wow, that's a really awkwardly placed drone shot in the middle of this dining room scene. Like, why is that there? You know, it's because a director will get like the three days that they have a drone and they're like, well, I better throw one into the dining room and like go through the hallway in the house with the damn thing. It's like, it's, it's so superfluous in those, in those zones. But like for Ian and I were like, okay, well, let's figure out a way where we could have this drone available any day we want it. So we're not like trying to pigeonhole, like wedges, square peg into a round hole. It's like, so we ended up getting uh, an operator that was working on the crew and then we just bought the drone. So nice. it's available whenever we wanted it. Nice. There wow. you go. Now, in terms of, you know, we mentioned the drone as being the, the, the sort of the relief vehicle to, to get us away <laughs> from some of these more intense scenes. But I want to talk about those intense scenes mm. because, you know, in small town crime and in Fat Man and certainly in Red Right Hand, I mean, the violence, there are shocking moments of, of violence and action, you know, throughout the picture. And Esham, I know when we talked uh a few years ago, you're talking about, uh, you know, you, you storyboard a lot of these things, but especially when you're working with a script that was written by someone else, how do you uh, keep things fresh? You guys watch a ton of movies. You've probably seen a number of films that are at least in this genre or adjacent, you know, to it. So when you read something or even you're writing something, how do you say, I'm going to, I can do this in a way that's never been done before. Or maybe you lean into convention, but you zig instead of zag. How does that come together for you as, as an artist and, and as filmmakers? Um, I think, I think you're, you're right on, on topic. It's exactly how we think about it. We go, okay, well, 
if we've seen it before, what's a 15% turn we can do on it? Or we've seen that before, we got to do something different. Yeah, we're constantly trying to subvert the audience's expectations. Or sometimes you can use it to your advantage. You know, you can use a moment that everyone knows and then have the ending of it be completely different and throw you into throw throw you a, a curveball that you weren't expecting. And those can be really fun. So and that and that was part of that. That was part of that development process we did with Jonathan for a few weeks there is just trying to zig and zag around some of the conventions of the genre. And he'd already written a great script, but it was just like, especially in some of those action sequences, they can get tiring if you're just wall to wall action. Now, we were like, okay, we're invested in the characters, great, but you don't want to see an action sequence go down the exact same way you saw it go down and just be able to sort of paint by numbers through the action sequence. So we had a lot of fun throwing in monkey wrenches and moving characters into corridors and rooms and having things happen to get them to those places that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, I think there's also for us um, pacing in a film, right? You don't want to... You don't want to have action fatigue halfway through a movie where you're like, wow, I'm just going to queue through these next three action scenes because I'm just overloaded, you know? And I've actually found that happening to me on, on some of these more uh, recent, like, gun-fu movies, you know? I'm just so fatigued by the 50-yard line that I'm like, wow, I don't know that I can watch any more, you know, operatic gunfighting. I think I'm over it, you know? So for us, it's like, it's got to be very, we, we don't want to, you don't want to burn you out too much. You want to just kind of like try to find a pace that keeps the audience engaged and it has a build to a crescendo at the end. And hopefully we're throwing enough variety in there, right? So like there's a moment, a very pivotal moment in the middle of the film and we, we go for broke because it's, it's got to be shocking. You it's sure got to push, it's got to push the, the protagonist over the edge and it's got to incense the audience to the point where you're like, shit's got to change right now. Right. She needs to die. And so that's like also like looking at the story. Right. And how that's mapping and like, OK, this scene needs to be utterly and completely impactful and devastating. And this this moment right here could be that. But we're going to that's too early. We don't need to burn it there. We burn it here. You know, and on that note, within that within that mindset, do you also have like a line? That you're like, all right, let's go to the edge here, but let's not cross that because that's too much. We're constantly trying to push that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and look, man, like some people's lines are further than ours. Right? Yeah, so, true. And I mean, some you, people have, you know, weaker stomachs than we do. So, yeah, you're talking about two guys <laughs> that were showed Terminator when we were seven and eight years old. Same. You know, and it was right. and we couldn't get enough. We we're like, yeah. oh, this is amazing. You know, like this is this is what the I want. Best movie ever made. You know, <laughs> Enough of like alien and aliens and like and, and I remember our parents walked in and like Arnold's like cutting out his eye, you know, and, yeah. and like pulling the yeah. skin off his right. arm. My mom's like, oh my god, and she was yeah. out of there. And we're like, oh, this is amazing. Like, yeah, you know, par like, parents have a tendency to just walk in at the most unopportune time. <laughs> yeah, uh, that awkward sex scene, and it's oh, like, oh man, walk in here. So yeah. great. I was wondering too. It's like when I was watching this, I'm like, "Oh, Orlando Bloom's back in Kentucky after Cameron Crowe's Elizabethtown." That's did right. you guys ever talk about that? He oh, did. Oh, yeah. We were we were driving around. I'm like Elizabethtown. And he's like, and then we get on set, and he's like, "Yeah, I shot right up the street in Elizabethtown." I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> some of the best, some of the best years of my life." I'm like, "Okay, amazing." Because that's because that's so funny. Because uh, over Christmas break, I was driving down with my family from Chicago to Florida, and we had to make a stop in Elizabethtown. I'm like, oh, here we are, and yeah. and then I watched this movie, and you know, I I was wondering, like, I, I know that here this is a very uh, geographically distinctive movie, and I was I was wondering, yeah, you could call it like redneck noir or whatever you want to do, but like, were there things within this genre that you you like? 
decidedly did not want to do racism racism for okay sure. that felt yeah that felt that, that for us felt completely out of place and didn't have a place in the story for us okay you know it's i'm glad that, that we're talking about this because i'm gonna tiptoe my way around it because i'm gonna reference a very specific scene but there is a scene where there is a black character mm. and awful things are happening to him and I think in a different kind of movie, this would have been a cause for commentary, considering where he is, the, the people that are surrounding him. But then you notice the people that are surrounding him are not all, you know, <laughs> white rednecks. It's a, it's a pretty diverse group of people. And that is in itself shocking. And I think kind of says a lot in a different way. Um, did I mean did it did it ever occur to you? Was there were those elements in the original script that you said ah, I want to sidestep this, or was that in the the kind of the vision all along from from the written it page? It was certainly was uh, it was it was certainly conversations we had, but that that moment was in the script from the start. Yeah, that moment that character was in the script one hundred percent. And all we the way just along. and we just I'm talking more like the pe the people that were in that oh, room because it says, it says a, it's well it says a lot about. The people that Big Cat deals with, mm -hmm. and the yeah. the sort of diversity and the expanse of this criminal empire that she has, which you know, oh, maybe they're just like moonshiners who are getting into meth or something. No, it's it's much more it's more expansive than that. It never said in the script, Big Cat has a very diverse set of crew, a crew, but <laughs> it never said she's got a bunch of lily white Nazi crazies either. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Esoteric, weird question. <laughs> um, Blake Snyder wrote a really cool book on screenwriting called Save the Cat. Mm. And the the premise uh, of the title is that in order to, the, one of the easiest shortcuts for establishing a hero in a movie is to have them save a cat from a tree or the equivalent, you know, just a really generous, kind act in the beginning of the movie, like, oh, I, I want to be behind this person. In this opening of this movie, uh, Orlando Bloom's Cash saves a colt from a breech birth in a barn. And I immediately thought about that. Is that is that a cosmic coincidence or are you guys Blake Snyder fans too? Uh, I haven't read Save the Cat. I haven't read as but I either, know but what it is. It, yeah. And I've seen obviously nice. yes. I need to read it. Uh, I need to add it to the, to the volumes back here. Um, I, I know the concept obviously well um, for us that foaling scene represents Re, uh, the potential for future. It's a theme like rebirth um, that, the, that, that things will live on beyond this generation. Which is why, spoiler alert, we pay it back at the end, you know, when she's with the cult at the end um, and you get a sense of like, okay, like there's a path forward, uh, there's redemption, there's, you know, mm -hmm. like something's looking down upon them. Like the, the, the farm seems a little sunnier, you know, it's not gloomy anymore. It's not... Like you feel like good things can happen. Flowers could sprout, you know, <laughs> that kind of vibe. Um, the scene or the, I guess the, the 20 minute set piece that precedes that kind of sunny, you know, ending and not to give it away. I mean, this movie could end on a horrible tragedy. You know, it, it, it's just yeah. sunny. It's just sunny outside. Well, that tragedy certainly goes to dark places. So I, you know, you're in for, <laughs> I mean, you don't know who's going to make it. Who's not going to make it. It's, it's a roller coaster. It's true. It's true. But that the the climactic uh, kind of a siege on a house, we we get to see the inside of Big Cat's uh, premises, and a lot of bad things happen there. The, 
was that, I mean, I assume that was a real location that you just had license to completely mess up. Tell me about scouting this place and how you got the people who owned it to agree to let you blow out windows and kill people inside. Um, yeah, that's always a delicate conversation with the homeowners. Uh, <laughs> we, we, first of all, we had to search high and low for that, for that uh, place. It was not easy to find weeks and weeks. because it was so specific in the script on how it blocked out. Right. It needed to have that surrounding wooded area. It needed, it needed to have a bunch of things in the front yard. So what's interesting about that house is, first and foremost, the front that, that we're shooting as the front is actually the backyard. Oh. And the front of the house looks very, very humble because back in the day, the back was the front. And then when the advent of the automobile and the driveway all became prevalent, they moved it to the other side because you could, easy, you could drive a car into that side more easily. Mm which posed a huge problem for us because we've got cars driving all over the place in that backyard. And we were like, Hey, how do we even get them back there? And that was a very uh, interesting process of uh, staging cars, you know, on, on a runway, just out of the screen. But um, we'll give credit to Jordan Crockett, a construction designer who <laughs> put together, you know, something that looked like the front of the house rather than yeah. the back. But, but they were honestly like pretty thrilled to the, the, the they obviously they love their home. Uh, they're very proud of their home, the owners. And they, I think they were thrilled to have it immortalized in cinema, right? Okay. So, and, and, and obviously when we go in there, we're handling the place respectfully. Respectfully, They gave us rules, which we abided by. Uh, when you're seeing plaster and, and things like that flying off the walls with bullet holes, like obviously we've created like a facade over their real walls. So we're not just, just blasting out their walls all the bits. And like those vases and lamps and things are all vases and lamps we put in. You yeah, brought we, in, yeah. Yeah, so we bring in all the stuff. Um, one thing we do, though, is we really like a lot of practical effects, right? So a lot of people pitched us like, hey, you're not going to be able to do anything in this house. Like, you're going to have to just add all this in and be back later. And we're like, absolutely not. Because it just looks so poor. Like, we want particles <laughs> flying through the air. We want bits of wood going here. And we there. don't have David Fincher money, so we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> can't. Yeah, like, we know, and we've been through this a couple times now. It's like, when we leave this location what we've got in the camera is 98 percent what we're gonna have yeah so we're not gonna be able to go back there as ian said with david fincher money and throw a few million dollars at you know a few and bullet holes in the wall um so all that's practical Com huge compliments to the team that pulled that off because we did we had two shiny nickels to do it with and uh and we and a lot of those sequences were one take you can't wow. mess it yeah wow I'd say 80% well, of them are one take because we, of the budget and the time constraints. You can't reset, didn't have time to reset and didn't have the budget for a new piece of or time new yeah. window for the, for the glass for the window. And it didn't have, you know, couldn't reset the big wall. It was just, all we have is one like, wall with split squibs in it. Yeah. Like some of that stuff that's happening in the hallway, like takes a day to rig. Yeah. Right. So you're like, we don't have time to ever re-rig it. So if it, if it doesn't work, like if it didn't work, we would have been host. Now, the good thing is, is that, you know, technology has come a long way. So that, that 90, <laughs> no, 90 some odd percent that we do get in the can, you know, in the on screen, you can fiddle with it. If something goes off a little earlier, a little late, you can, you can power window and, and move it around a little bit and make sure that it gets that half a second beat to where it fires off on time. You can do little things like that. I will say another fun fact. <laughs> about this about those action sequences is you know in the in the 20th century there's been some technology advancements and some one of those technology advancements is a wireless device oh yeah jesus that as soon as you pull the trigger on a rifle and a gun and a blank fires it triggers the squib by sound so you don't have to sync oh. it up yeah and so if you fire wow. five shots 
it's triggered. It, it, they can program it to go mm -hmm. fire one, five, seven in that order. Like as soon as the, it, it registers the shot sonically. We had that wow. on Fat Man. And we, it worked we, we had that on Fat Man. We had that on Small Town Crime. I can't tell you what Bermuda Triangle Vortex we were in in that Kentucky mansion, yeah. at that mansion. But it did not work, and they it could did. not oh, no. ever get it to work. So oh. everybody is strapped up 1970s-style. Wires, wires to a trigger box. Yeah, oh. so there's everyone's wired. So all those have all those squibs in the wall, all those oh squibs on anybody. They're all, they all have wire running down their pant leg. Uh, just <laughs> off screen, the guy's around the corner with a flip board. The flip board. <laughs> Old school. Man. Oh, man, it was awesome. Well, those, I mean, those limitations, I think, lent themselves to the reality of the, the script, because in that, that scene, I'm not going to say who or what really happens, but someone gets shot through a window, and we see the body kind of come out the other side, and in another, you know, call it a Fincher action movie, you would have seen the body, like, fly out dramatically through the window in this crazy shot. In this, the body just kind of like flops out and falls over. And like, that looks like someone really got, you know, shot in real life. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's very effective. Yeah. I think for us, like our tastes kind of go more, a little more grounded, you know, most of the time, not to say we're not going to make something down the line. That's like just people flying out of 15 story buildings like that may in fact happen. Um, but most of the time we skew a little more, a little more grounded. Not that any action movie is grounded, right? Verite action. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, even, even, <laughs> we, we, we love that it, you want it to be entertaining, but you also want it to be some, like, at least in the plausibility of believability, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you're like, okay, this could possibly happen. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I think we're about ready to wind down here. David, did you have any other, any last questions? Yeah, just to kind of wrap it up, I know that you mentioned that during the pandemic, you guys are working on like a lot of collaboration and writing. Um, is any of that seeing any fruition or is it was that just to keep the uh keep yourself you know subtle supple and 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 ready to ready to go or, or what, what's happening in the future i guess is what i'm saying yeah for sure no we've got a bunch of irons in the oven um we, we produced uh a, a independent tv series called everyone's doing great second season of that uh, we got done and ready to rock out uh we're we're developing a fat man too we'll see if that really question see we'll see not gonna work there's uh there's people who are interested so we i mean we've had a pit we have got a pitch that we're heading out with so. yeah so we'll see what happens with that uh we've we got another script ready to go uh that we wrote and that is probably what we're going to go on and start start trying to cast right now but um and we've got financing and then we've got a huge sci-fi uh that we oh. wrote uh that we couldn't be more excited about based on a comic book uh, adaptation. So yeah, we're super excited about that one as well. Okay. Well, both of us are comic book fans, so you'll have to, you know, let us know what's happening. Yeah, we'll here. keep you posted. We'll keep you yeah. posted. Yeah, no, it's, it's coming along well. So we're, we're excited, man. It's, uh, it could be very cool. It could be a very prolific year. The next couple of years, perfect couple of years. Yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Well, we really hope to be able to, to have you back to, to talk about whatever you have coming up. Cause again, you guys are two of our favorite filmmakers and red right hand is, is right. Uh, it, you know, it, Every, every film's a banger, and this is no exception. Um, it's in limited theaters uh, right now as we speak, and also on VOD, so everyone should definitely check it out. So Ian and Esham Nelms, thanks so much for, for hanging out and talking about not just the movie, but like making the films. I think this is very helpful for oh, yeah. people who are aspiring to, to do their own stuff who don't actually have the millions of dollars to, to go out and do something. You guys just do it with what you have, and that's really inspiring. Ian, David, thank you guys so much for having yeah. us, man. Always a joy. Uh, kicking yeah. with you guys, chit chatting movies. Big love to you. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Take right, care, man. guys. Good luck. Cool. Take care. <laughs> Bye.
Bye.